for a few moments before we actually get to Genesis, because we're quite familiar and have been here before already in this series, <clears throat> showing uh, Paul's summary of Abraham's life, the things that he did, and the areas in which he was so incredibly faithful to God, even when things did not look good. But he did not walk by sight, he walked by faith. Remember in verse 1 it says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, but the evidence of things not seen. So these people in this chapter, all of them, could not see the answers. They had things they hoped for, things that had been promised, things that they could anticipate, but they had to move toward them, sometimes not even knowing where they were, how it would work out, what God would do, or how he, in his almighty, omnipotent power, could micromanage things from heaven above that are here on this earth in a way that would astound. God has that capacity. We seldom, even though we might understand a scripture, know exactly how God will work it out. And certainly he holds the timing of most things to himself. At some point, he may let us know, as he did Abraham, when events would occur, but for the most part, he keeps it quiet. That way, we look for the thing to occur, we don't just look for the date for it to happen. He keeps us off balance a little bit that way, doesn't he? And when you're off balance, what do you do? You work at achieving balance. You work at achieving a situation where you feel at peace and at ease and comfortable. Any of us can probably remember times when we were in what seemed a perilous position with our bodies, be it hanging off a ladder or a cliff or a tree or whatever it might be, or a car about to go off the road, and we felt in great jeopardy and greatly in unease. And when we're sitting at home in our easy chair, we feel pretty relaxed and at ease and not in fear of mortal death or, or mortal conditions to come upon us. So God keeps us off balance on purpose because when we're uncomfortable, we tend to look to him more. And you will find without fail throughout history that God's people rarely were in a comfortable spot. And they had things that came up over and over and over again to keep them unsettled, to keep them frustrated, and that way they would continue to look to God because so often we will not go to God and bend our knees to him unless we are uncomfortable. And that leads us in that direction. It isn't that God wants to put trouble on us, it's that we require it. That's the problem. And that has been true throughout history. So these people truly believed in God and the things that he promised and not knowing when or exactly how or sometimes even where they went seeking, trying to 
do what God said, even though they did not have all the answers themselves as yet. <clears throat> and being under those circumstances required them to act in faith, not in sight. That is a very critical issue. God, Christ even said, will I find faith when I come back? He, did, he could have asked about several different things, but that is the one he specifically singled out because it is so difficult for us to do what God says to do when we don't see the answers. Let's skip on down past Abraham now uh, with the thought in mind that he was required to offer Isaac, and he just simply assumed, as Paul says, that God would resurrect him after he himself killed it, which would have been a very emotional gut-wrenching situation to have to do, but God called it off just in time so that Abraham did not have to go through that, but Isaac also had to be obedient and respectful to his father and to God. So God did choose the right son to work through. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. So let's pick it up in verse 20. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. It wasn't just a gift of the moment. It wasn't a dying parting gift that Isaac gave them, but it was a gift of things that would happen in the future. We like things that would please us now. When it comes inheritance time, we like to know that we get this, 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 and that don't we? In fact, a lot of times people will set it up ahead of time. Mom, can I have this when you die? Sounds a little macabre, but <laughs> that's a lot of those things are figured out ahead of time. What's going to happen to mom's ring? What's going to happen to the heirlooms of whatever they might be? Because the children would like immediate satisfaction after the death of the parents. But that's not the way this came out. They had to have faith in whatever promises were given them that it would occur in the future, not necessarily all of it in their lives. And going on down, it says, By faith Jacob, when he was a-dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph, that would be Ephraim and Manasseh, and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. And this goes on down the line, Jacob having his name changed to Israel, and then Joseph going to, being sold into Egypt, which must have seemed a very dark hour in the family, and certainly to Jacob. But God knew what he was doing, didn't he? And hadn't he told Abraham, I will send your seed into captivity for 400 years? We promised him that he would give them this land and to his seed forever. He says, but... They're going to captivity, be in slavery 400 years. <clears throat> so even though events might have appeared very dark at the moment, God knew exactly what he was doing, and he didn't tell everybody what was going to happen. He just let it lay and let them lead their lives the best way they could and trust God to work things out. By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Abraham knew 
that he would have a seed through Isaac, and he knew that his people would go into captivity, and that was obviously told down the line through Isaac, through Jacob, and to Joseph, because Joseph knew that the time was coming when Israel would leave Egypt, and he had asked them to take his bones with them when they left. So that showed he was looking forward. He knew what was going to happen. He knew it wasn't going to happen in his lifetime because he knew the story that had been told Abraham that you'll be there 400 years, and the 400 years wasn't anywhere near up when Joseph died. But he made sure that his kids knew he didn't want his bones left in Egypt. He wanted carried out of that place. So the answers were not in sight, but they knew the story. And they looked forward to it, just as we see many, many promises for this end-time church, things that are beginning to occur around us and will happen faster and faster. And we don't know all the answers. We don't know the exact timing, but the events are laid out, and we must believe it. And God says he will protect those who obey him, so we must believe it. Does that mean then that it will never look grim or dark? No, it does not. But will the light come on when it's God's time and in the way that he wants it done? Yes, it will. God is a micromanager. He knows exactly what he is doing in detail. It is we who have the problem. So let's go back to Genesis again with that summary in mind a little bit. We'll pick the story up <clears throat> in chapter 23. Now 37 years before this event in chapter 23, Sarah had given birth to Isaac and <clears throat> She died here at the age of 127 years. These were all the years of the life of Sarah. So Abraham would have been at this time 137 years of age. And Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, the same as Hebron. Wait a minute, we've already done this. Where am I? Where am I back here? Oh yeah, we're supposed to be in chapter 25. We've already been there. This is where Isaac, three years later, had taken uh, Rebekah into his tent and married her, and he was comforted after his mother's death. And in chapter 25, then again, Abraham <coughs> took a wife, and her name was Keturah. He would have been, let's see, 137. This is three years. He'd have been about 140 at this point when he decided to go ahead and get married again. And she bore him Zimran, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. So six sons uh, were born to Abraham through Keturah. Seems like when God fixes something, he fixes it good, at least. Uh, <laughs> he was all dried up and dead, basically, at the age of 99. And uh, once God caused Isaac to be born... 
he obviously made it possible for Abraham to continue that kind of relationship, and he had lots of kids afterward. Jokshan begat Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim and Letushim and Leamim. And the sons of Midian, Ephah and Epher and Hadath, all these were the children of Keturah and, and their children as well. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Now, God had made it very clear to Abraham that Isaac was the son of promise and that through him God would bless and that that is where the seed that would spread across the earth would come from. So he gave everything he had to Isaac, but to the sons of the concubines, so it wasn't just Keturah that he married uh, and had children by, but he also had other women, and they had children. So the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son, while as he yet lived eastward unto the east country. So he was in the promised land, probably around Jerusalem at that time, and he sent these children away. So his entire inheritance saved the gifts that he gave to all these children of Keturah and his concubines uh, went to Isaac. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 103 score, 15 years. So he lived to age 175 and died. So for about 45 years there, after he married Keturah, he had children and grandchildren and uh, was very wealthy, gave what he had to Isaac and died. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, which is before Mamre. So it was the two older sons, Ishmael the eldest and Isaac, who was given the birthright, uh, who did the burying. The others had been sent away with a gift and told, have a nice life, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you know, But uh, God had made it clear where he wanted the wealth, the strength, the power of the family to go. Buried him there, the field which Abraham purchased of the sons of Heth. There was Abraham buried and Sarah his wife. So he was buried there with her, uh, his original wife. I suppose Keturah probably outlived him, for I assume that if he was married and started having children at age 40, he must have married a very young woman uh, to have that many children by her before she got too old to have children. Uh, that would have covered quite a period of years. I would assume that he was probably about 100 years older than Keturah. Those numbers boggle our minds, <laughs> but uh, quite an age different there. But then music didn't change every 10 years like it does now. <clears throat> you know, they still had things in common. Anyway, verse 11, It came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and then Isaac dwelt by the well Laharoi. Now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaid, bore to Abraham. Remember, God had told him, Ishmael too will become a great nation. And then it bears it out here and shows 
that that indeed did happen. We can trust God. Even though Hagar was sent out by Sarah and was cut off, basically, God had said, he also will be a great nation. So these are the names of his sons, according to their generations, and he names 12 names, which we'll not read. Verse 16, these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their towns and by their castles, 12 princes according to their nations. So the sons of Ishmael would consist of 12 nations, um, basically the Arabs today. And they are not, I repeat, in the promised land. The Arabs are over in the Middle East, which I do not believe was the promised land. Isaac, Jacob, Israel would be in the promised land. He said it would be to his seed forever. So all we have to do is look around where Israel is today and know where the promised land is. And remember that Ephraim, God raised to the level of the firstborn in Jeremiah 31, so he received double blessing and honor, and therefore the land of Ephraim is the center of what God is doing in the end time. And where do you find the church today? I know that's material we've been over before, but we're trying to get our minds around an incredible concept now, and I think it bears a certain amount of repeating as we go through the story to see what God has done and where he has done it. Uh, These are the years of Ishmael. He lived 137 years, uh, 18, and they dwelt from Havilah to Shur, that is before Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. And he died in the presence of all his brethren. I think that's interesting right there. They dwelt from Havilah to Shur, uh, now, Havilah was near the Garden of Eden and where God began with Adam and Eve. And it is near where, uh, I believe, Jerusalem would be. The Garden of Eden, Zion, and Jerusalem were right there in a central spot that God had selected on the earth. Now, if you look at the Middle East... Uh, if Jerusalem were the center of it, as we know Jerusalem over there today, you do not go through Egypt on your way to Assyria. That Jerusalem is in between. You know where Egypt is now, over there in northern Africa, and what they called Assyria at that time was up uh, near the Caspian Sea, on the, what we know as the Euphrates and Tigris River area. That's where Assyria was. So you didn't go out or go before Egypt toward Assyria. You went out, you'd go out of Egypt up to Israel and then up to Assyria, wouldn't you? So what is he saying here doesn't fit the Middle East at all. Now, if if the setting was over here, I don't know for sure exactly where Egypt was or where Assyria is. One man who has looked at this a lot says that he felt Assyria was up around Michigan in that area and that Egypt was possibly around northern Utah, may have been some of it southern Utah, I mean northern Arizona, I don't know for sure. But if Egypt were north, 
then you would go through Egypt toward Assyria, up toward Michigan. I don't know that that's the way it was. That's one man's idea, and it may or may not be right, I don't know. I think those details will probably come out in time, but one thing I do know, this does not seem to fit the way Northern Africa, the Middle East, and that part of Western Asia is put together. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife. So three years after his mother died, he actually took Rebekah as a wife. I don't know how long. They may have had a courtship when she came from uh, Nahor's family, but possibly some time was involved. Uh, she was the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. Now we have trouble again. Isaac entreated the Eternal for his wife because she was barren, and the Eternal was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. Now this was not a prayer offered one day and she conceived the next day. I don't know how long he prayed, but it was over a period of time because it took 20 years of marriage before Rebecca had a child, or before she conceived a child. We'll see that here in just a moment. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of God. She had been barren for a long time, actually 20 years. And then she had twins in her womb. She didn't just conceive, she double-did it. But there was a struggle going on. I guess it was such a struggle that it was something she could not ignore or deny. You know, women who have a baby there, they feel the life at a certain point, and they feel elbows and knees, and uh, they get butted, and you can even see as they get older, the, the tummy stick out where the baby's pushing. And sometimes they press downward or upward up under the heart and they can cause all kinds of problems both directions uh, because they're moving around. So, but this was extraordinary. She had two babies in there and they were fighting. They already had personalities that were developed to the degree that they couldn't even get along in the womb. <laughs> Did she think trouble was shaping up. They didn't just kick her a little bit. They had a knockdown drag out going in there, and, and she was the recipient. It got so bad that she went to inquire of God. Now, she obviously felt that God had intervened after 20 years so that she could become pregnant, and then she felt this battle royal going on inside her and wondered, how could this be if God caused the pregnancy? How could I still be having trouble? And sometimes we see a little answer from God, and then we see more trouble, and then we scratch our head and wonder what's going on. So she went to talk to God about it. That's how bad it was. And the Eternal said to her, he answered, he says, two nations are in your womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from your bowels. Two different peoples separated. 
So they were together and fighting, and when they came out, they would be separated. <laughs> Wait till you, the rest of the story here. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. God's telling her something here that normally wasn't. Usually the elder, firstborn, has more birthright, double the blessings, and the younger uh, looks to him for leadership rather than the other way around. And we even know there have been books written about the different birth order of children and how the firstborn tend to be and the secondborn and then the tail ender and everything else. And the differences, differences in personality simply because of birth order, even when our nation is not following the, the double blessing of the firstborn and so on, yet there still is a difference in the personalities of the kids, and that's been noted by a lot of different authors in our society. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, and I guess this would have been a real deliverance as opposed to a normal birth. I mean, a normal birth is a deliverance, yes, but after all she had been through, this must have been quite a relief. Behold, there were twins in her womb, just like God had said. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau, meaning red. I saw him, and that's the only thing you can, you know, sometimes you don't know what to name a kid, and it takes a little while to kind of figure it out. There's not much personality there, but the minute they laid eyes on this one, hey, call that one red. That's how hairy and how red he was all over. Kind of like an orangutan, I suppose. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel. He was known in history as the grabber, or the heel grabber. They'd had this battle royal going on in there for months, and Esau found relief and slipped out, and Jacob was right behind him, coming behind and grabbed his heel before they could even get Esau picked up and swaddled. So the battle that had been enjoined in the womb continued right on the outside. Do you think there was going to be animosity between these two boys? I had a couple of boys that fought a lot and were always in competition with each other. But not like this. His name was called Jacob, and Isaac was threescore years old when she bore them. So he was 60 by this time. Uh, so there had been 20 years from the time he had been married until the children were born. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. He wasn't a hairy, rough type of a guy. He was plain. He was almost hairless, it appears, from the story. Uh, a lot different. Obviously the same mother and obviously the same father, but a vast difference in the boys. Oh, Jacob liked to stay around the house, stayed in the tent. Esau was an out of, outdoors type of a guy. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. Isaac evidently had a real taste for wild meat, maybe deer and elk that was around here, moose, uh, antelope, 
but venison anyway, animals of that nature. And he, he favored Esau because he was bringing him the food that he liked. Perhaps Jacob had eaten uh, venison when he was younger, had a real taste for it, and then when Esau followed in his steps, uh, that made him the favorite son. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Well, he hung around the house. He was mommy's boy, uh, is what he was. Quite a difference here. And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. So Jacob liked to cook, nothing wrong with that. Uh, he just had a totally different personality. But uh, he was more housebound and enjoyed those things. I don't take it that it meant that he was necessarily effeminate, but he was not the rugged outdoorsman that Esau was. Anyway, Jacob was cooking, and Esau came in from the field, and he hadn't eaten, was really, really hungry. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray you, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom, or red again. Uh, and it says in another place that Edom is Esau, and Esau is Edom. So the Edomites came from Esau. Now there's competition here. They're still fighting, aren't they? Hadn't, it hadn't eased up. Jacob said, Sell me this day your birthright. You want some of my soup? Sell me your birthright. He didn't ask much, did he? <laughs> Esau said, Behold, I'm at the point to die. What profit shall this birthright do to me? I'm going to die here of hunger before you give me some soup. Birthright's not going to do me any good dead. Of course I will. Jacob said, Swear to me. I don't want you just say it, you swear. And he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Now that, in a way, I guess you'd have to call it blackmail. Uh, you could call it just a business deal if you want, I suppose. Uh, but there was no particular chicanery. There was Jacob just taking advantage of the fact that Esau was so hungry. But is it loving your brother as yourself to exact that price for a bowl of soup? I, I do believe that he was scamming him. This, this was not a fair deal. It needs to be win-win. But these boys were very competitive. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. Didn't just give him the soup, he gave him bread to boot. Wow, what a generous guy. And he did eat and drink, and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And boy, did he come to rue this day, and to hate with all his heart, because he had been conned, had been scammed. And he gave up the incredible wealth that Isaac had for one bowl of soup with some bread thrown in on the side. Thank you. There was a famine in the land, beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, to Gerar. Now remember, Abimelech is the one that Abraham had twice told Sarah he was his sister to try to save his life. The Eternal appeared to him and said, Go not down into Egypt and dwell in the land which I shall tell you of. 
we're told in Isaiah uh, and other places not to go down into Egypt. Egypt represents sin. Didn't so much then because they hadn't been slaves there and been turned out from it and want to go back. But even then, God knew what would happen uh, with Egypt and what Egypt would become in, in metaphor and in prophecy. He said, don't go into Egypt in the time of drought. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your seed I will give all these countries. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. So this tells you right here that the promise God had made to Abraham included a great deal of area. He said all these countries around, not just as far as you can see north, south, east, and west, but all these countries will I give. He said, I don't want you to go to Egypt. Now that would come in time when Joseph was sold into Egypt. But God didn't want them going down there yet. It wasn't his purpose. So even though there was a famine, as there had been in the days of Abraham now, God said, don't go down there. don't want you in Egypt. So there is a time to go to Egypt, and there's a time not to go to Egypt. There's a time to eat, a time to drink, time to live, time to die. This end time, God doesn't want us going into Egypt. He doesn't want us to go the way of the cultures of this world, or Babylon. Give you all these countries... Verse 4, and I will make your seed to multiply as the stars of heaven and will give unto your seed all these countries, says it again, and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. <coughs> and then he tells him why. Verse 5, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Why does this nation have the blessings it has today? Because we are such a wonderful people? Are we any better than other peoples on this earth? I don't think so. Not intrinsically, not as human beings. <clears throat> in fact, don't we lead the world in degeneracy today and in greed what other nation has the debt that we have? What other nations have their credit cards full and maxing out and mortgages on two or three cars and the boat and the jet skis and the house and everything? Mortgaged up to here. Most people in America today spend nearly every bit of their income just paying their debts. They don't have much money to spend other than it's already allocated and a lot of it interest, with interest to the banksters. We don't have these blessings because we're so great. We have these blessings because our father Abraham believed God and he acted on his belief. He showed his faith by his works and did everything God told him to do, and held back nothing, even his own son. That's why we today have what we have. 
We are not obeying God as a people today, as a nation. And God has said, but even though I promised Abraham and I did it, and I gave it to you, if you disobey me in the end time, I will take it all away. And then he says, I know this people will not obey me. He says, don't even pray for them in Jeremiah. Because they will not repent. They're like a backsliding heifer, as he said in Hosea. Got all four feet planted in the next step and will not obey God. They jerk their shoulder away. We are losing our birthright through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because of our disobedience to God. Now, does it become clearer with that background just why it is that God says he will protect and bless those who will obey him? I think that should be abundantly clear. The way to God's good side and have him smile on us and protect us from all that's coming is to obey him with all our hearts. That is the bottom line of the end time message to God's church. If you will have the blessing of God, live like Abraham lived. Does it then begin to make connections in our heads as to why God said he would give us an Elijah at the end who would restore all things and how important it is to turn our hearts to our fathers? who are our fathers in the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a powerful story. And that is what has to be done if we are to be saved out of this. God saved Abraham from trouble, Isaac, Jacob, and blessed them to lead a long life. And isn't that the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother that you may have long life. Now, our spiritual lives are here, and our physical lives. And even though we grow old physically, God says he is going to deliver his people before this generation that he has called dies out. The majority of those who called are now, in this age, getting quite old. Many, many have already died, but the generation has not died out. But it's not too far from it. How hard is it for you to get out of bed in the morning? Some of you. We're getting older. There are still some young that God has called. Some of our young people as part of the families. But for the most part, the generation that he called in the 40s, 50s, 60s, when the church was truly growing, 70s, are growing older. Well, this has to be pretty soon. And right now is a critical moment in time for us to be turning to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and living as they lived. If you walk by sight in the world today, you're in trouble because it's all coming apart. And we could go the way the world is to try to save our hides. But God said, if you'll obey me, you won't need machine guns. I'll take care of you. I will not let them kill you. Now, it does say that some will be put to death 
by people who think they do God a service. And that some in the church will betray others in the church to death. But I think, <coughs> excuse me, that is speaking basically of those who are going to be left behind and go into tribulation, which constitutes about 90% of those that God called into the church here at the end time. But the faithful 10% are going to be drawn out and protected and become a light on a hill to the world. If we want to be part of that instead of the ones that are killing and being killed and dying in tribulation, then we need to pay attention. We need to think deeply. We need to pray. We need to change our lives. We need to be as close to God as we can possibly get and trust Him to take care of us. Because He said He will. If He promised it to Abraham, He was promising to Abraham's seed. So what is the bottom line? Obey His voice, keep His charge, His commandments, His statutes, and His laws. That's bottom line. And Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place asked him of his wife, and he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, She is my wife. I think he had a genetic problem here. <laughs> That's the way good old dad did it. I guess do the same thing. <clears throat> now, these people had their weaknesses. They had their human fears, and yet they were obeying God. Now, we're going to have our human fears... We must obey God, and I'll tell you what. We're married, or being married to Christ, and the church, in a sense, is our mother, the woman. Now, Christ is going to say of 90% of the church, I don't know them. Who, me? I don't know those people. He's going to say 10%, you are my wife. He will back his wife up. But any who are wayward, he will not. For he feared to say, she is my wife, lest should he, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebecca, because she was fair to look upon. I had a, some generations of good-looking women here, obviously. And uh, the men who were married to them were afraid. And it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw, and behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. I assume they were probably playing tennis. <laughs> I, I, I kind of think it was a little different sport. Uh because it became obvious to him that they were married, not just brother-sister. And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety, she's your wife. I know you wouldn't have been playing that kind of game if she was your sister. And how, said you, she is my sister. And Isaac said to him, Because I said, lest I die for her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might have lightly laid with your wife, and you should have brought guiltiness upon us. Isaac did sometimes think of himself first, and he did not love his neighbors as himself. 
if he had, he would have said, this is my sister, don't you dare, I mean, this is my wife, and don't you dare touch her, and try to kill me, and you'll be in trouble with God. Now, that's the way he should have approached it, but he didn't do it. <clears throat> He's still listed in Hebrews 11, is waiting for his reward in heaven at the time of the resurrection. So he too had some times when he had trouble truly trusting God. Now this man's life was one of trust in God, basically from start to finish, but he had his moments just like Abraham had. We all have our moments, but hopefully we're working toward resolving those areas of weakness and lack of faith because we'll all have them, but renewing our trust in God. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He that touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now that's how afraid he was. <clears throat> then Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year an hundredfold, and the Eternal blessed him. Now this blessing came right after his distortion and lie. Was God rewarding him for lying about his wife? I think not. Didn't we just read, because Abraham obeyed. So God was continuing that blessing with Isaac, in spite of Isaac's momentary lapse, because of Abraham. Well, this was passed down generation to generation until today. You better believe that. That's a pretty good crop, <laughs> hundredfold in wealth. The man waxed great and went forward and grew up until he became very, or grew until he became very great. For he had possession of flocks, possession of herds, great store of servants, and the Philistines envied him. Let's fast forward. When God gives his people the riches of the world and the hidden treasures and the riches of secret places. Do you think this world's going to envy? Do you think they're going to be jealous? Do you think a little, weak, base people who mean nothing in the larger scope of the things and what's happening in this world today, do you think they'll be in the least bit jealous and envious when God brings these things to pass. See, sometimes we want blessings, but you have to realize that with, that with blessings comes another problem. In this life, we're never free from problems. People sometimes wish they could be rich, and then they win the lottery, and then their life gets very complicated. It's complicated with the IRS, gets complicated with their friends who'd ever called, gets complicated with their friends that they never had, that are now suddenly bosom buddies, and everybody's after their money because they're all jealous and envious. So when God began to give the blessings of Abraham to Isaac, along with it came trouble. So we need to understand, don't we? 
because we are on the very edge of God beginning to bless his people in much the same way, only more so. I would not be at all surprised to find out at the end time that God's people came into possession of some of the very same gold and silver that Isaac right here had and that Abraham had possessed when he walked this earth. God works those ways. And the prophecies are there that the wealth of God will be given to some spiritually Gentile man who will bless God's people with it. So stay tuned. <clears throat> We're going to see that happen somewhere to God's people soon. Because that's in the prophecies. Whether it will be you and me or someone else remains to be seen, but it's a promise. It's scripture. It's something we can hope for even though we do not see it there. But God said it. So walk forward in faith. Obey and expect the blessings of Abraham. But not for the entire nation. The nation has had physical blessings of Abraham and degenerated and sinned, and they'll be taken away. But God is going to give both physical and spiritual blessings to his people as an absolute witness against the world. Are you ready? to be a part of the work of the two witnesses. Those witnesses, really, are deeper than just a couple of men. And the reason I'm saying this is it is going to be both a physical and a spiritual witness, two powerful witnesses that God is God. In terms of physical wealth to build a temple, and in terms of spiritual wealth to be a light, wealth to be a light against the world. Those are the only two witnesses you can have, aren't they? Everything is either physical or spiritual. So God is going to witness against this world in both those ways. Now he may choose two men to deliver the verbal message and to bring plagues. But it is a people that he blesses physically and spiritually who really embody those two witnesses to the whole world. That God is giving everything physical and spiritual to his people. It is not just the work of two men at the end. It is much, much bigger than that. So when men here or there claim those offices, unless these prophecies begin to be fulfilled in a people somewhere, and the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah begin to take place, forget about it. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. Because it's much bigger than any two men. And I don't think 
that any of these people who are standing up and claiming I'm it and my wife's it or whoever else, you know, it goes on and on. There was an article in the journal not long ago about a guy who had met at least 28 of the two witnesses. Well, and, and, and he was making light of it. It was tongue-in-cheek, I understand. And it was, it was a funny article, and it was good. But little does he know that there will be probably seven to 12 or 15,000 of the two witnesses. He's not thinking big enough yet. He's only met 27 or 28. Because it will be done through God's people, not just a message of two men. Perhaps we need to think deeply about that because we could be included if we do what's right. So I know this is not that work, is it? Because we're only about 50, 60, 70, 80 people, depending on how you count. I'm looking for seven or 12 or 15,000, a 10% remnant of what was Worldwide Church of God, to form those two witnesses, a physical and spiritual blessing in the end as a witness against the world. So it's not just us. I hope we're included. But it's a lot bigger than we are. And that's got to happen and start occurring pretty soon where God begins to stir and put his hand to begin to separate a people out to be his voice against the world, to be his witness against the world. They have to keep laws of God as Abraham did. If they don't, how can they be a spiritual witness? And if they can't be a spiritual witness, how can God give them the physical witness of the wealth? It's far bigger than you or me. Um... Where was I here about verse 14? He had all kinds of blessings. Verse 15, For all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines had stopped them and filled them with earth. They didn't like Abraham. Everywhere Abraham had gone and had his men dig wells, the Philistines came in behind and filled them up with dirt. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go from us, for you are much mightier than we. Isaac had feared that Abimelech would kill him. Now Abimelech was beginning to feel, you better get out of here because you're stronger and better and mightier than we are. And he began to fear for himself and his own people. And Isaac departed there from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. He went from the city, went out away from them and dwelt there. He didn't fight for that place. He didn't say, you're right, we are mightier, you go. He was a peacemaker. (laughs) He put the other man's feelings ahead of his own. So at times, he thought first of himself and his life, but at other times, he was willing to go the second mile and do his bidding. He didn't get his macho pride up and say, no, I'm staying here, you go. 
Isaac digged again the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father. Knew where they were, and he was in the same land, wasn't he? Same place where Abraham had dwelt, that God had given to Abraham forever. Redigged the same wells. And he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. He said, I know what well this is. I'll dig it back out, and it'll have water again. And Isaac's servants digged in the valley and found there a well of springing water, water flowing out of the ground, or living water. The herdmen of Gerar did strive with Isaac's herdmen, saying, The water is ours. And he called the name of the well Esek, because they strove with him. That means the well of contention. So I guess he changed a name here. Oh no, they digged this one. It wasn't one of the old ones. Found a spring, and then they fought over it. And they digged another well, and strove for that also. And he called the name of it Sitna, or Hatred. So he kept having his people dig wells, and these Philistines would come and fight him over it. So he had blessings from God, and yet trouble came because of the jealousy and greed of people. And he removed from there and digged another well. And for that they strove not, and he called the name of it Rehoboth. And he said, for now the Eternal has made room for us. That means room. God has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So he kept moving over. I'm not going to fight with you guys. I'll move on over. I'll dig another well. Okay, I'll dig on over, dig another well. How many of us would be that patient and non-contentious, I wonder? I dug that well, it's mine, get out of here. Not the way he approached it. I think that he had had good training as he grew up. He went from there to Beersheba, and the Eternal appeared to him in the same night, and said, so God had dealt with Abraham, now he was dealing directly with Isaac. What did he remind him of? I am the God of Abraham, your father. What does he tell us at the end time? We need to look back to our father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the fathers. <laughs> Very much on God's mind. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your seed for my servant Abraham's sake. How many times does God tell us in Isaiah and in Haggai, and I think in Zechariah, and other places, fear not. <laughs> I will take care of you. If we are obeying God, we have to bite back the natural tendency to fear. And God tells us that over and over and over. He told that to Joshua just before they went into the promised land. Fear not, be strong, be of good courage, and go ahead and do the work that I've given you to do. Divide the land up, I'll go before you, and I'll defeat those enemies. <coughs> and he proved it at Jericho shortly thereafter. So that has always been God's message to his people. Don't fear, I'll take care of you. Isaiah 8, there is a conspiracy, it's an end-time prophecy, the time the word Emmanuel begins to be used. There will be a conspiracy at that time. Don't fear it, fear me. He told Joshua, also remember when he went into the land, he said, read my word every day and you will have good success. 
some of us watch very carefully everything the New World Order is doing and spend a lot of time on the Internet, a lot of time figuring out what Satan the devil and his minions are up to. Now, we need to be aware of what's going on in the world. But sometimes we get an inordinate fear of the conspiracy that grips the earth, the new world order that's taking over, and Satan who directs it from behind the saints. And we need to be doing what Joshua was told by God. Read his word every day so that we might have good success. Our protection in this end time has nothing to do with what Satan and his Illuminati are doing and are about to do. Our protection and our success in the job that God has given his end time people has to do with how close we are to God. That is the bottom line. I'm not saying don't ever look at those things. I look at them myself. I kind of try to keep a little running uh, knowledge <clears throat> of what's happening. But it's really easy to get your mind on the enemy rather than on your deliverer. That has to be kept in the right balance. Remember what happened when Peter jumped out of the boat? As long as he kept his eyes on Christ, he literally walked on water. And when he looked down and around at conditions, it popped into his mind, I'm doing something that cannot be done and he sank immediately. When we look at what's going on around us, at the wind and the waves and the enemies, <clears throat> we are taking our mind off Christ. And we're going to sink. Let's be aware of where our eyes need to be. We need to spend an awful lot more time concerned with what God is doing than what Satan is doing. I don't know how I could emphasize that enough. I really don't care that much where the Pope is today. I have no idea where he is today. I don't know where the leaders of the European common market are today. It really doesn't bother me a whole lot. I don't know and could care less <clears throat> where Obama <clears throat> or Hillary or John McCain are today, what they're saying in their speeches. It really doesn't impact what I am here to do. Whoever gets elected, God will have put there because they are one of the basest of the people on earth just like our present leaders are among the basis of the people on earth. So I know what's going to happen. Whichever is the worst of the three will probably be the new president. So I'm not spending any time listening to their speeches. 
are worrying about what they're doing and who's ahead. Basically, I could care less. What the leaders of this world are doing should have essentially no bearing on you and me. What should have an awful lot of bearing is what God is going to do with his people and which ones he's going to use to do it. And our fear should not be of this world, but of God. If you want to do something that will help you, stick your nose in this book and do it every day. Do it regularly. How can we get our focus so askew that we literally spend more time observing what the world is doing than what God is doing? You can read the Bible. You can listen to tapes about the Bible. And you might gain help toward saving your life eternally and maybe even saving it physically on this earth. But if you're studying and spending most of your time tracking what the world is doing, I think you're probably going to miss the boat. Your emphasis is wrong. It won't gain you anything. What does God want us doing? Now that's a bit of a digression, I guess, but I think we need to be aware. Isaac was. He was concerned that he should do things the way Abraham had done them. And he went, lived in the same land, but he didn't fight or worry about the people around him that much. Once he got his thinking straight, I guess, he was going to do what God wanted him to do. God made room for him. God took care of him. Verse 23, he went up from then, there to Beersheba, and the Eternal appeared to him in the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. Oh, that's where I went off the track. No, that's where I discussed the track we ought to be on. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And if you read Haggai and Zechariah carefully, you'll find God makes those same promises to us. And from Isaiah 40 forward, well, even before that, but specifically from Isaiah 40 right on through until the time Christ returns, those same blessings are given for his uh, faithful remnant. And he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Eternal and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech went to him from Gerar and uh, Huzath, one of his friends, and Phicol, the chief captain of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why do you come to me, seeing you hate me and have sent me away from you? What are you doing here visiting me? Why are you coming to me. We might be in those positions at some point where we've departed from the world, we've gotten away from it, and yet they come against us or to us anyway. 
And they said, We saw certainly that the Eternal was with you. And we said, let, us, let there be now an oath between us, even between us and you, and let us make a covenant with you. So they may be jealous, they may be angry, but at some point, people recognize where God is working. And when they began to realize that these blessings that Isaac was receiving were unusual, they were beyond normal, they said, this must be coming from God. So now they come around with a rag to polish some shoes. You are now the blessed of the eternal. And he made them a feast, and they did eat and drink. So he said, all right, let's sit down and talk, bring in the food and wine, and we'll have a party. And they rose up be times in the morning, and swore one to another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. You're big and powerful, God's with you, we want to form a friendship. We said, okay. We have to be big enough to overlook sometimes what has occurred. Vengeance is God's, not ours. <clears throat> so if God begins to bless us, we cannot suddenly rise up and get big-headed and macho we must be meek and humble and serving God and deal kindly and peacefully with any who might be our enemies, not with pride and vanity and ego. God's witness against this world will come in sackcloth and ashes. Meekness and humility will be the watchwords, not pride and vanity. It came to pass the same day, verse 32, that Isaac's servants came and told him concerning the well which they had dug, and he said to them, We have found water. Or they said to him, We have found water. And he called it Sheba, an oath. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba unto this day. An oath. Now it said it was a spring of, was it, was it beer? says, Beersheba. <clears throat> I hope it was cold. And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mine to Isaac and to Rebekah. Now Abraham, remember, had been very explicit in his directions to his servant who was to go find a wife for Isaac. He says, you be sure that this woman comes from my family, from my kin, from my people. And she was fairly close of kin. A generation had skipped and it was the granddaughter of his brother. But he wanted to be sure that things stayed in the line that God was building. And this was very, very important because God had made the promises of Abraham down through Isaac and Jacob who came to be known as Israel. It wasn't through Ishmael who came to be known as the wild-ass of Arabs. God made sure. It was very important to these people who they would marry. 
Now, does that echo anything in 1 Corinthians 7 where God said, marry only in the Lord. Don't marry anybody outside the church. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his instructions to the New Testament, New Testament church had their roots in Abraham. God wants his church to be pure, to be clean, not to be divided, but to be together and on the same page so there is no division, there is no schism, that we understand the same and believe the same. And if we don't understand and believe the same, we had better be getting there fast. Because that is the goal that God inspired Paul to lay out for us. If we disagree, we had better not be ignoring the issues, but we had better be working them out. If there is contention, it needs resolved. We must live in peace and live and walk together in peace. And God made it very clear that even in existing marriages, if he called one and not the other, if they could not live and walk together in peace, and the unconverted would not allow the converted to be at peace, but fought them at every turn, they had every right to dissolve that marriage and marry someone in the church. And as strong as God is on divorce and remarriage, and as much as he hates divorce, as he says in Malachi, he permitted it under those conditions because he wants people to walk together in peace. <clears throat> if we are not on the same page, and there be divisions and differences in doctrine, they must be resolved. We must move forward to accomplish what God wants done. And if there's disagreement, it must be resolved or dissolved. One of the two. God will require that. Esau, I don't think it says it right here. There is another place it says it plainly and in so, much, in so many words. That he married this woman because she was not of the seed of Abraham. He did it to spite his parents. When he saw that his birthright was gone and that he had sold it so cheaply and been cheated out of it, a depth of hatred consumed his soul to the point he would do anything to rebel against his parents and ultimately against God. He had so much pride, vengeance, animosity, and hatred that he was not about to obey God the way his grandfather and father had done. He could have repented. He could have said, I'm sorry, Father, I despise my birthright. 
talking to God and to his physical father. I'm the one that screwed up here. Yes, Jacob took advantage of me, but I'm the one who came in and took the bad deal and repented. And he wanted to, but he had so much pride, he just could not turn it loose. He sought it carefully with tears, says in Hebrews 12. He cried, he agonized, he prayed, but it was so deep-seated he could not turn it loose. How deep is our pride? What will we get hung up on that we can't give up? He couldn't. So he lived his life out in vengeance and hatred. sad to see a whole people go that way. This isn't the end of the story by any means, but we're at a place where I think we should go ahead and stop for the day. But isn't there an awful lot in here that we need to be looking at that are the same conditions we might have today? We're going to face the same hurdles, the same obstacles. And if we are a part of those whom God blesses, we will have automatic enemies. We will have people who hate us. And if it turns out we're right on some issues and others who have put us down have trouble with that, and then they don't have the humility and the meekness to say, I was wrong, then they may suffer deeply when they see it happen. We must be meek and humble. God says he will save a meek and humble people for himself there in Zephaniah 2, just before it talks about building the temple. Out of all the pride, the vanity, the ego, the preach the gospel, the I'm the leader, I'm the leading evangelist, I'm the apostle, ad nauseum, he's going to find a meek and humble people that will obey him, and the remnant is going to be people who are that way too. And if they've been wrong, they will admit they've been wrong. And they will humbly accept the leadership that God is going to put before us. Will we do that? Or will we, in our pride, stand up against? I hope we are learning meekness and humility. And if we do, maybe we can be included in those that God uses <clears throat> as his witness against this world, both physically and spiritually.